This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, podcast pendants. It's producer Mike here with another handy public announcement. Namaste, motherfuckers, is growing and growing, so thanks for listening and thanks for recommending it to all your family and friends. Every day we get new motherfuckers listening to the show who really love it, but they don't really have the time to catch up on all the old shows. So, to mark back to school time, we thought we'd help you catch up on just a few of what we think are some of the standout shows. So enjoy episode one of our mini back-to-school season, featuring the living legend of comedy, the mayor of Balham, Mr. Arthur Smith. Quick note... At the end of the show, Callie throws ahead to the next guest as per normal, saying it's Emily Dean. Well, it won't be. It will actually be Rosie Jones. So there. But in the meantime, here's Arthur Smith, motherfuckers. Namaste, Day Motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of comedy, self-help and business collide. I'm your host, Callie Beaton, and today's episode is about how comedy, tragedy and poetry can change your heart. John Cocteau said, the poet is a liar who always speaks the truth. That's John Cocteau, the 20th century French poet, by the way, not one half of the 80s Scottish pop band little contemporary reference there for the young listeners. Uh, Now, poetry's had a bit of a lockdown resurgence, hasn't it, with the youngest ever inaugural poet, Amanda Gorman, stealing the show at Joe Biden's inauguration with her poem, The Hill We Climb. I could not believe what I was seeing, a 22-year-old with such grace, poise and eloquence, reminding me that my 22-year-old can't pick his own pants up off the bathroom floor. But in defence of my offspring, here's a quote from Philip Larkin's This Be The Verse. They fuck you up, your mum and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. They fill you with the faults they had and add some extra just for you. Hi, Arthur. Ah, good. I can actually hear you. (coughs) And I'm guessing you can hear me. That's one hell of a pair of headphones you've got there. I know, really annoying. That's today's guest, comedy legend and self-appointed nightmare of Balham, Arthur Smith. Metrophobia is a fear of poetry, something that Arthur doesn't count among his ailments. As he says in our chat, poetry for him is eternal truth. And uh, I've got a pair of, uh, they were sort of nearly pyjamas. I don't know if you can see them there. Oh, that's a treat. That is lovely. I didn't. Um, I don't normally like to ask a young man what he's wearing on his bottom half because it's not that kind of. It's not that kind of a show. <laughs> I grew up with Arthur Smith, not in the same house in South London, but with him being a significant part of the radio and TV soundtrack of my teens and twenties. Not only 
was he one of the best-known performers on the alternative comedy scene in the 1980s? But he can sing jingle bells backwards, and his French is so good, he's sometimes mistaken for a Belgian. As well as our mutual love of poetry, Arthur and I talked about our Bobby on the Beat dads, conspiracy theories, unconditional love, and life after intensive care. But I started by asking him about the title of his autobiography. My name is Daphne Fairfax. Yeah, well, it used to be a joke I used to come on, and I don't know why I ended up being called that, but I used to come on and say, good evening, everybody. My name is uh, Arthur Smith, unless there's anybody here from Streatham Tax Office, in which case I'm Daphne Fairfax. And I, it, it was an opening line, and it just, I don't know, I ended up doing it so much, people used to joke about Daphne Fairfax. Funny enough, when the book came out, I got a letter from a lady called Daphne Fairfax, who lived in the South End, saying that she'd never had such attention paid to her. And so I sent her a copy of the book, and then she wrote back and said, it was the first book I read for years, but I enjoyed it. It's lovely. She had to say that, though. Imagine if she'd written back and said, do you know what? I could take it or leave it. The best thing was the cover with, <laughs> with well, my she, name She on could it. have just easily not written back at all. <laughs> that's true. That's true. And letters. Was... Do you remember letters, Kelly? <laughs> my daughter was stuck in Amsterdam uh, for most of the first lockdown. Right. She lived... She's not like six or something. She is a, an adult. <laughs> I'm not yeah. just a really shit mother. And we got... We, to pass the time, we would send each other letters because we liked the oh, kind of old nice. schoolness of it. And we'd also yeah. sit and we would do what we called stitch and bitch. We would sit and do sewing together via FaceTime and just have a chat, but we weren't actually making eye contact. You know, you have those good chats when you're not looking at someone, like yeah, in the car. Yeah. We were like sort of two spinsters in a Jane Austen novel by the end of the first <laughs> lockdown. Well, probably one of you was married by the end then. Yeah, more likely to be her than me, to be fair. Although the offers do still flood in, you know, there's a lot of call for menopausal <laughs> redheads uh, in that market, I believe. Oh, the menopause. I'm glad we don't. I'm glad I don't get that. Well, you wouldn't be getting it now anyway. With all due respect, no. it would, yeah. which is always a sign someone means no respect, isn't it? Um, you'd you'd have passed through it. You'd have yeah. glided through it by now, I think. It's much harder being a woman, isn't it? Physically, it's not fair. It's really hard. That's actually why I've um, paused my video so that you can see a lovely, because my holding picture looks all right, doesn't it? But when you see that, when you see the animated me, it's, uh, it's quite a problem. For anyone who's just tuned in, that's because my Wi-Fi connection is unstable. Uh, so we've had to stop my video. But it's nice of you to be talking to me from South London, because uh, I'm obviously, as you know, I live in North London. Yeah. So I know we're the scum of the earth and you're probably yeah. making an exception to do this. I agree. I mean, I have a joke, which was uh, the thing, the difference between North and South London. In North London, they have little blue plaques commemorating famous people. In South London, we have big yellow signs saying, did you see this murder? <laughs> and you know, because we uh, we did a little lift share recently, didn't we? You know that my uh, yeah. my fella lives in Hither Green, wherever that is, Arthur. So, um, <laughs> so, so I'm familiar. I actually did live in. I went to Goldsmith, so I lived south of yeah. the river. And like some some people are very opinionated about which side of the river to be on, but I quite yeah. I'm 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 kind of agnostic about it. Which well, is well, that's that's a very bad attitude to take. <laughs> If you're a proper Londoner, I mean, I've always, it's a great joke, really, that Londoners have shared, I think, probably for about 500 years when there wasn't anyone living in South London. 
But uh, it, it, my dad it always it was always a big joke. He never liked going over the river to get into Norway, you know, and it was all full of bastards up there and their scum. And you know, let's build a wall around South London. And <laughs> you've got some good stuff, uh, haven't you, about the kind of uh, the divide and the not letting them in, taking all our jobs and all of that. There's a good, yeah. there's a lot to riff on with the North South London. Yeah, yeah, that. yeah. Well, I do it around Ballam as well because I, I, I put it about that I'm the mayor of Ballam. I mean, if you put into Google Mayor of Ballon, my name will come up, I suspect. Is uh, that based on the Peter Sellers uh, sketch? Is that where that's from? Well, remember, no, not really, although I, I've always, that, for those of you listening who don't know what reference Callie has made, I'll now invite her to tell you. So this is, so I can't remember who wrote it because it was written by some very good... I think it was Dennis uh, Norden and Frank Muir. Was it? So good, again, really contemporary references oh, yeah. for our, uh, our listeners. We're trying <laughs> yeah. to appeal to the young with this, and I think it's working really, really well. Um, so, yeah, there was a sketch, there was a, well, would you call it a sketch, yeah, where uh, where Ballam was referred to as the gateway uh, to the south. And there was... Balham, that- gateway to the south. It was a Peter... Well, it started out as a little sketch. It ends up, I think it's probably on YouTube or something these days. Bell uh, making a joke about And I've always thought, though, one of the great things about Ballam is it's got its own catchphrase. Uh, well, if you're over 40. <laughs> or even over 50, south. I reckon. <laughs> yeah, Maybe yeah, over 50. I reckon you've yeah. got to be born in the 60s to get that one. But now <laughs> we've brought, we're bringing stuff back to people in this these nostalgic ages. So you're South London born and bred. You were Bermondsey and then Kidbrook, right? You moved to Kidbrook. Well, you've really done your homework, Kelly. Well, we I'm also impressed. we talked about this. Yeah, when, I, that's I, right. when I dropped you, I can't even remember yeah. where we were. Chelmsford, was it? Maybe? I yeah, know. Oh, I don't know. It was my, somewhere beginning with C. It was my one outing of 2020, so I remember it well. It's the one time oh, I went out. No, and... yeah. Do you remember going <laughs> out? Okay. We... Like when you used to kind of go to a place or get on a bus or something. Wow. Or go, as the young people say, go out, out. My daughter said the other night, she said, it's been so long since I went out, out. And I was thinking, I don't know, did we ever go out, out? Or is <laughs> well, that the Instagram a, That's a reference to, what's his name? That comedian uh, did a whole routine about out, out. Did um, he? Which comedian? Oh, damn. Look, everyone you know is listening to this knows who I'm talking about, except you. And I'll, now I've forgotten his name. And you. You don't know who you're talking about right no, now. No, I do. I can it's see just... him. He's done a giggy. I used to have a... Series. Hello, podcast pendants. Producer Mike here with some handy fact-checking. The routine Kelly and Arthur are struggling to remember is Mickey Flanagan's Out Out. But you knew that. ...from Radio 4 some years ago called... Arthur Smith's Ball and Bash, and I had all sorts of comedians and signed, you know, Squeeze playing in the front room here. And uh, did the, you? God, that's because they're South London boys as well, aren't they? Oh, yeah. What are they, Blackheath? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is near Kidbrook, as you probably don't know. Well, I do know because Kidbrook. I go through. I mean, I'm sure you hear this a lot if people mention <laughs> Kidbrook. I go through Kidbrook when I'm going from Hither Green to the Blackwall Tunnel. I go through Kidbrook. Wow, this is such exciting news. <laughs> I know, people, <laughs> my, it's not that I've lost my mojo or anything in lockdown. Um, I'm going to tell you about the tube timetable in a minute. <laughs> Funnily enough, you mentioned Kibra. I got a, a, a little exchange with Danny Baker, uh, who you'll know, know of, and he lives in Kibra Park Road, I discovered. 
Well, it's gone really push now. They've got a whole load of flats. I only know this because going out with somebody who is of a similar vintage to you and also South London born, he's Lewisham born and bred. So I get all these stories about that area. And it was really nice when we had our little lift chair to whatever station it was, because then you and he could have that conversation. And then I didn't need to have it for 10 minutes. it It was really nice. Where were you brought up then? I was brought up in, well, Dorset primarily, so a bit of a different... Uh, a bit oh, of a different yeah. story to yours. Go on, but do a full-blooded Dorset accent. My accents are really... No, I, can't, <laughs> I, I can't even remember my own accent now. I used to work in... I was underage at barmaid in a local pub, and I used to sell... <laughs> oh, I, used to, I used to give scrumpy away to my friends. So, <laughs> oh, how's that? Scrumpy. Whatever, is that still going, scrumpy? Listen, I'm sure in that pub where I... The Phoenix in Gillingham in Dorset, um, I can say I was an underage, but I was running that bar when I was 16. I can say that now because the guy who was illegally hiring me is probably long dead. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know who they're oh, Gillingham. Do. I've got a story about Gillingham because uh, I was doing a gig there one night, uh, except that I thought it was in Gillingham, which I think is probably spelt the same. It's spelt the same, but very different. Yeah, and it's only it's not that far from Ballam, and I had to get home that night. But I discovered that I was, in fact, in Gillingham, in Dorset. So I had no way of getting back, and I don't drive. But I had to be back early for something the next morning. So I did a tweet hitching. I sent a tweet saying, who can give me a lift from Gillingham in Dorset back to London at midnight on blah, blah. And uh, I got, and I did. I got a, a guy gave me a lift. He was a lovely bloke called Gary. We had a really nice chat, and he didn't even charge me. Are you sure it wasn't? Well, if he's called Gary, it wasn't my dad. Because your dad was a policeman uh, yeah. later in life, wasn't he? I, can I show you a picture of my dad as a policeman? Oh, yeah, go it? on, yeah. Let me show you this. So this is my dad. Um... Oh, brilliant. He's on his bike. He's on the... Oh, do you know that's... Oh, that's fabulous. Do you, know do you want me to show you a picture of my dad? Yeah, will you show me a picture of your dad as well? Yeah. Well, funny enough, it's stuck up on the wall behind me. Hang on. And I, what I could do is I could take a picture of your dad as a bobby and send it to my dad as a bobby, couldn't I? Yeah, yeah. So, hang on, right, I'm going to put my bloody headphone things on. These ones are stupid. You could rent those headphones out to students as accommodation. Oh, well, <laughs> I can't get the fucking headphones See, it's on, a shame but... we're not um, recording the visuals here. Yeah, <laughs> but you can just go, oh, right, I'll find your resume. Right, right, here is the picture. Now, I don't know if you'll be able to see it that well in... It's a bit shiny. Yeah, no, that's uh, good. I'm going to tell you, if you push, put, if you get it a bit lower on the screen, there we go. Yeah, and that is my, there? well, what has happened there, he's on the beat at the Elephant and Castle in South London, obviously, and a drunken woman came up to him. Oh, he was outside the old Vic, uh, so up that way. And a very drunken woman came and tried to start kissing him. Uh, and this obviously this is quite embarrassing, but he never really liked, you know, he didn't want to arrest her. He never really liked arresting anyone, my dad. But anyway, at this point, the old Vic uh, came out, all the audience came out, and they, this was the funniest thing they'd ever seen, obviously, was this very little drunken woman desperately trying to kiss my poor embarrassed dad. And, uh, and someone took a picture of it, and it was sent to him. And so that's the picture I just showed you of my dad in about 1954, tried to fend off a very pissed woman who wanted to kiss him. 
Well, my dad's that was taken about 10 years after that. So my dad was in the Surrey police. And in those oh. days, he um, he so they I was he, he'd stopped being a policeman. He'd become a French teacher by the time I was oh, wow. little, which I know um, is the opposite of you, isn't it? Well, you did. You were a, an English teacher in a French school. Yes, that's right. But j'arrive à parler en français. Je sais pas si je suis plus doué que toi. Non, je sais pas. Je parle un petit peu français. Uh, il y a quelques uns, and that's where I stopped. I used to be able to speak really good French, and then I learned Dutch. I became fluent in Dutch. Oh, wow. And being British, I couldn't have more than two languages. So my brain was like, we better shunt the French out <laughs> and make way for the newcomer because you are essentially British, and two languages is a big challenge for you. Actually, um, in my French there, I, I tutoyed you, which probably was a bit, bit out of bit order. casual. Yeah, because to those who don't know, there's two views in French. There's the, apart from the plural one, there's you is, is two, which you say to your partner or your children or someone you're very close to. And then vous is for everyone else. And but do you I, think that's changed a bit? I think it's gone. I think they've gone a bit more um, to and a bit less vous in more recent years is what I've heard, that nowadays you only use yeah. vous if you're being very fancy. Whereas oh, when we were right? learning, yeah, I think it's, I think vous, I think two, I think nowadays in France, I might, because I've met you a few times, might be a two. Oh, that's interesting. Because I remember once interviewing a French woman and I asked about this and I said, well, you know, when could I, how long would I have to know you before I could call you two? And she said, we would have to be between the sheets. Oh, <laughs> and that's a whole other language in another language, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? So yeah, I think... Yeah. Uh, oh, my... go on, do a bit of Dutch for me. I think I asked you to do this for... Do the Van Gogh said properly. Ik kan helemaal in het Nederlands praten. We kunnen de hele podcast in het Nederlands doen, als je dat wil. Of we kunnen in het Engels praten, omdat we niet in Amsterdam zijn. Excellent. But where's Van Gogh? Come on. Van Gogh. The yeah. Van Gogh Museum. <laughs> Dus yeah. de Nederlanders houden wel van Van Gogh, hoewel Van Gogh heel vroeg dood ging. So that's in the Dutch, are big fans of Van Gogh, although he did die <laughs> rather young and unfortunately. Oh yeah, oh, well I've been to, um, oh I'm a bit of a fan of Van Gogh. Van Gogh, yeah, that's it, uh, just get us a spittoon <laughs> and you'll be grand. Yeah, and uh, I remember, do you know, remember that famous painting of his, what was it, uh, Café La Nuit? Yeah. And I remember, I've been in that cafe and... Uh, and that was, it was, oh, he was, oh, was sad. He never, he only flogged one painting in his whole life, and that was to his brother. Yeah, then, he became imagine, posthumously famous, didn't he? Which is what yeah. I'm relying on, having started so late in Standard. <laughs> I'm going to be such a big name this time next century. And uh, my great-grandchildren are going to be very, very yeah. pleased to They'll see They'll have me. statues of you everywhere. Oh, they I think they already think I am a statue. No one's noticed anything about me in a very long time. I said to my kids the other day, I could get a Tiger King tattooed across my whole body and you wouldn't even notice. So um, when you, because you, when my dad was a, was a policeman, um, he lived my brother was born in a police house on a on an estate in Guildford and oh, in yeah. those days they put so there was one police house on an estate yeah. where the rest weren't police houses and so yeah. which really is a recipe and it was like labeled as the police house so it's kind of like having a sign saying kick me isn't it or a, <laughs> or a pea plate on a car well I, I was brought up in uh, yeah ours was a, a little block of flats that's still there is now used by students I think 
uh, off the lower road. And that was all. We were all policemen's kids and it was police uh, working there. And then, yeah, we used to have some right old bundles with the kids around the corner. I remember there was, uh, you know, you, well, you had to be in your little gang, didn't you? Who was in your little gang? Well, I was in uh, various gangs, but I was in the Mischief Gang, uh, led by Ray. Uh, he was a boy who was so tough, his contribution to the nature table was a dead dog. <laughs> 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 yeah, really, we were tough. We used to, have, we were in endless battles with the Parkies, obviously, which were the people who used to work in Southern Park, you know, the Park Keepers. And we were always sort of kicking leaves about and hiding and generally being annoying. Namaste, motherfuckers! Have you seen the thing that's gone viral now where you hold, gone viral now, I said that like a right old person, where you hold, <laughs> you like hold a duvet in front of yourself and you're with a pet and you hold, you hide yourself behind a duvet and then you drop the duvet to the ground and you fall to the ground behind it. So the pet, the dog or whatever thinks you've disappeared and they look uh, and they're like, they go frantic. It's funnier than I'm telling it, Arthur. You'll have to have a look. <laughs> it's I'm TikTok, you've not... is it? Yeah, it's on TikTok, yeah. I'm surp- Are you not into TikTok? Has lockdown not driven you no, to those depths? I, no, I, I'm, I'm, I do do Twitter, but I don't really do. I mean, I, I had another joke. I thought Instagram just used to be a really efficient drug dealer. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, I don't know. I just do Twitter and a bit of Facebook. I should do more, really. But should you do more? I think everyone's saying you should do less, aren't they, for yeah. your mental well-being? Because um, this is, as you know, namaste, motherfuckers. It's kind of about mental well-being, um, albeit yeah. a little bit tongue-in-cheek. Talking of your dad, because I got quite attached to your dad in your autobiography. Mm. I started feeling a bit like I knew Sid a bit, I think because you oh. were saying it. I was like, oh, he sounds lovely. And you said, and I did write this down because I loved it so much at the time I read your book, you said to be a stable individual, the most crucial factor is to be cherished when young because you do strike me as quite you don't seem as fucked up as a lot of comedians and you think <laughs> no. that's because your parents adore well you? it's funny yes I, I think it is definitely the best start in life to be loved by your parents and preferably they love each other uh, and you know anything else can lead you the wrong way but um what's i going to say about this hang on i've forgotten the dementia's kicking in the, uh, what, what was it you just said? I said you're not as fucked up as most comedians. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, because, I, yeah, a lot of comedians, I mean, it's funny, I've noticed that, that, you know, I could think of a number of comedians, you know, Eddie Izzard and Alan Davis and, you know, people whose parents either died young or one of their parents or, or there's other cases, of course, where the parents were horrible to them or split up. And, uh, and so it's a bit of a joke of mine that I blame my mother and father for, you know, I would have won the Nobel Prize if they hadn't been so nice to me. <laughs> but it probably made you less, because I, you know, I remember you, well, we're about 10 years different in age. So when I was really into watching comedy and listening to it and seeing it on the telly, you were very much a sort of name then. Um, yeah. and, and lots, not that you're not a name now, but that's when you first came to my awareness. And obviously, no, it's fair enough. I'm not such a name now. I but, think you're you quite know, a name. Enough. Yeah, yeah. I've got a long service medal. I think you've got more than a long service, but I won't blow smoke up your ass because I won't get it all the way from North London. Your ass is a long way away. But, you know, metaphorically, I'll blow you some smoke. But I think it's um, because a lot of the comedy then, if you think about people like Alexi Sale, and there was a real anger, wasn't there? Like lots of people would do it, would just properly 
furious. And I know that was partly politics, but I think it's easier to be furious when you've had a bit of a tough paper round as a kid, isn't it? Because you've got a lot to be angry about. <laughs> yeah, well, there are those people. Yes, I think you're probably right. I mean, it's an interesting thing about comedy. There are comedians who come on and start shouting away. And I, I must admit, I find that a bit hard to listen to for too long you know but it's a very effective way of doing comedy actually you're bloody angry about something but there are some comedians you think they're pretending to be angry but they're not really when you see someone who genuinely is full of bile then it is quite inspiring but uh yeah i mean but i've never really been an angry comedian particularly i don't think that's not me i've not been a shouter i'm all i think of myself as uh, more of a poet really i'd like to well, your poetry, when, when we did the gig in the place beginning with C that we can't remember, um, you do, the last couple, of, you do poetry in your act, don't you? Yeah. And you do it all. And I, I, I don't, I, we talked about this and I don't, I don't know how many comics could get away with that. With you, it just folds in and everyone goes with you. Mm. I've got a feeling if I started, you know, quoting from the Earl of Rochester, um, <laughs> even if I did bits with the C word in, people would be like, what are you doing, Callie? So you do, so you've got it all from memory and you just slip in poems yeah, apropos I've, of nothing. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, because they, they, they do fit in somehow with the rhythm of the way I speak. And if you think about it, poetry is... It's, you know, that which can't be translated. It's the, the, the crucial use of words in a way. In a novel, you can get away with a few words that don't quite fit in or around the wrong way. But poetry is, and it's the same with stand-up, isn't it? You know, if you have a, a punchline, you just slightly rephrase it and it'll get a huge laugh. You know, you might start doing it in the wrong way, though. It's crucial, the word order. And... And poetry is what people resort to. In, in it's this eternal truth, really. Poetry. And do you and tend to wait? Do you need the audience to be in a certain place? You probably wouldn't open on a lovely no. bit of Dryden, would you? You'd probably go. <laughs> no. Well, I mean, I've got some. I mean, I occasionally do some of my own poetry, and I might open on. You know, I've got some funny ones. Well, you yeah, do I'll one do of yours. One. Yeah, do me one. Uh, this has got a rude word in it. Uh, it is a, it's called The Christmas Cracker. The Christmas Cracker is pulled, and I read out the joke inside. Why does Noddy have a bell on his hat? The standard beat. Because he's a cunt. My fellow diners look shocked. They haven't realised this isn't really the joke in the cracker, especially not the 11-year-old boy I hadn't noticed who is laughing harder, I suspect, than he has ever laughed before, <laughs> even though I also suspect he's never heard of Noddy. <laughs> <laughs> you said I was going to play this episode to my dad, and now I'm going to have to say, <laughs> no, he'll, he'll like it. Um, I think a, a cunt from Arthur Smith is worth, uh, is worth yeah, I, I don't know, there'll be a saying about it's it. It's very rare I, I deliver that word. And first, when I started out, when we started out, it was kind of banned, that word, from from comedy because it was, you know, it, because it was saying something, somehow it was making female genitalia rude. And we were all very right on it then. 
And so it, well, you wasn't really allowed to say it. Well, lots of Canadians do use it now. I know it is. I mean, it's, always, it's also, it's a bit cheating because you can always get a laugh with a cunt, really. I think you've got to be circumspect with your swearing. Don't you think yeah. a lot of people start out swearing loads and talking about yeah. sex and it, it, you, you don't realise because you, yeah. it's not the way you can talk at home. You think, oh, that's outrageous and it's funny. And yeah. then you realise it's much funnier if you're going to use those kind of words to really yeah. use them sparingly. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I don't want to hear another young male comic go banging on about wanking and stuff. We know they do that, don't we? We know they're wanking because <laughs> they're 22-year-old blokes. So it's like, tell us something we don't know yeah, about Well, you. yeah, tell us that you don't wank. That would be interesting. My um, brother claims never to have wanked. Which brother, big brother or little brother? Big brother. Maybe he just wanted to protect you from such thoughts. Maybe he was like, oh, I don't think my little brother needs to know this. <laughs> no, I don't think my little brother was present when he told me. I was an adult, I think, when he told me that. Oh, I must ask him if it's really it's strange. But then he's quite a dude, my brother. You know, he used to be the editor of the British Medical Journal. Yeah, you've got a family with, with good, because your little brother's got a proper job as well, hasn't he? Yeah, They've all got proper jobs. Yeah, I know. Well, I think, again, that's because we had parents who cherished us. And my mother, who was a very clever working class girl, but she got into a grammar school, uh, but then she was evacuated during the war. And she did, you know, brilliantly in her A-levels, but there was no way a working class girl then could go to university or anything. Uh, so she but she was always interested in books and reading and she used to take us to the theatre. So, uh, and, and I think she thought, well, I couldn't do it, but I'll encourage them to. And we were the, the, the first generation to go to university and whatnot. So unconditional love, you had unconditional love as a child. Well, I don't know if unconditional, I suppose, if, yeah, essentially I did, yeah. And your dad died when you, how old were you when your dad died? 47, so I can't, you know, he, and he was 81. And um, yeah, I remember it, it was, it, it was hard to cope with that. But I, uh, I remember just before he died and he was kind of obviously on the way out, but he was at home in Bath where I lived and I was there. And uh and one afternoon, I was just sitting with him. He sort of woke up and said, I've been thinking about religion. And uh, I said, what? And I couldn't make out what he'd said. And then when I went downstairs, I realised he said, I've been thinking about religion. And so I just, I didn't really know. I went up and, you know, he wasn't a religious man at all, but I suppose clearly he was thinking about what happened after he died. So I, I remember going up and saying, look, Dad, I, I, you know, I don't know what happens when we die, but hey, maybe you'll be young and you'll be cycling through Dorset again with your friend Morris and you'll meet Hazel and we'll all come by soon. And then, uh, and then I, I mean, he didn't really wake up, but I sort of detected a small smile, I thought. And then, um, when, and then he died later that night. So... It was rather, I was rather pleased to have made that little speech, whether or not he heard it. He will have heard it though. They say, don't they, that your 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 earring, your hearing is the last yeah. to go. So that probably was. I mean, you yeah. were probably spinning him a real tall tale, um, <laughs> and he probably was like, I can't believe the last thing I heard was my own son lying to me about you yeah. know sunshiny fields. And yeah, well, but maybe it is. Who knows? Maybe that is what happens when we die. I mean, yeah. I must admit, I think it's unlikely, and I don't think he thought so either. But sometimes it's nice to choose a dream. 
and to choose a story. And he left Hazel behind then. And is Hazel still going strong? Well, yeah, she's, well, but she now has dementia. And she's, I mean, it was a very hard few years after my father died because then my mother was living alone, although near my younger brother in Tunbridge. But she was, you know, her grief was palpable and she started drinking uh, heavily. And then, and, and she could feel the dementia kicking in as well. And she, and it was, she was so depressed. But in fact, I kind of did a show about that. My Arthur Smith sings Leonard Cohen, volume two, was sort of about the subject of my mother's decline. But actually now, and she's in this home up the road, where I can't go and see her at the moment, but she's, um, and she doesn't really remember who I am now. So it doesn't worry me too much that I can't go and see her at the moment. Uh, but actually she's got these sort of tunes in her head internally and she uh, and she you know they look after her brilliantly the carers up there god i just worship those people and you know she does she's forgotten she's you know she doesn't know she's got dementia anymore and people always say live in the moment but i always think well, if you can't remember what the last moment was or you don't know what the next one's gonna be then sort of that's your only option People going off to India, sitting cross-legged for four months, they could just get dementia and be living in the moment yeah. right now. So Yeah, and well, there is some things to be said for it. There is. Um, it's like being in a... I was talking to Emily Dean, is, and then the doctors there yeah. say, if there's one place you're not thinking about yesterday or tomorrow, you're yeah. just hoping someone gets through the next hour. Have you been ever been in, a, in an ICU unit? Or I've been... Yeah, my my dad's mum. So my my policeman dad's mum, uh, who lived in Stanmore. So we weren't we weren't a Dorset family born and bred. She was very much a sort of a bit of a mother figure and a role model to me. She yeah. was a very modern woman, but she um, <laughs> she was still living on her own, kind of into her nineties, and she was a single mum. And she was yeah, she was a big inspiration to me. And she had a couple of little tussles with death quite a while before she died. And I've sat with her in an ICU. But you've a never been a patient yourself. Never been a patient in an ICU of you. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because you had um, <laughs> you had your pancreatitis. Oh, well, remember, you really are impressive with your, your home. Well, you remember cake. poetry. I remember everything about Arthur Smith <laughs> in a way that will have me arrested after this. Tell us that story. Well, um, I, I, I was woke up one night. I'd had a bit of a pain in my tummy and I was suddenly in agony. So I went to straight to St. George's uh, where, yeah, I had acute necrotizing pancreatitis which sounds pretty grim and is, and quite, I was more likely to die than live at one point, I think. So I was in, in the ICU for uh, three nights, and uh, I always remember the guy, someone telling me it's like £1,500 a night here. So I thought, wow, this is the most expensive place in the whole of London to be staying. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and the, that was quite an experience. And I woke up in the morning, in fact, I was surrounded by my brothers and my then girlfriend and my mum and dad and all sort of came in. I felt a bit like I was on my deathbed, but I survived and I'm still here. And so you stopped drinking then? Yeah, I mean, I now occasionally have a small glass of red, you know, every now and again. But yeah, I, did, I didn't drink anything for about 10 years. 
And can you, because a lot of people who've drunk to the extent they get kind of sick from drink can't, aren't mm. able to just have a drink or two drinks. I've dated a few alcoholics and addicts in my time. And I think I've probably got a bit of that personality myself. So I really, yeah. I can hard, I hardly drink. Um, and if I regularly had a drink, it would turn into regularly a lot more than a drink. So have you got the capacity just to have? Just well, to have I a seem couple? to now, yes. I mean, I have to keep an eye on it, but yeah, most days I don't drink and I only have like one of those little reds like that. I never drink red wine, yeah, really only with food. I'm quite French like that, you know. I should say for people who can't see what you just gestured, Arthur just said a little red wine like this and gestured to something the size of a casket that, he would, uh, that Captain Pugwash would come into shore on. So just a little vat of, no, he didn't. Yeah, no, it's one of those little ones that's £2.60 in the co-op. Oh, well, now you've given me some context. And if you went to the Lidl, it might be £2.10. But yeah. maybe, do they have a Lidl in Ballum? Or? No, but we've got an Aldi and a Sainsbury's and a Waitrose, which really annoys the posher people of Clapham up the road, that we've got the Waitrose and they haven't. Once you've got a Waitrose, you're, you're very much in danger of losing your working class credentials, oh, I think. absolutely. I'm more of a co-op man. It's just over the road. And I, actually, that's one of the things all this lockdown business has taught me, to really cherish those guys and gals who work in the co-op over the road, doing long hours and probably not getting paid that much and, you know, having to put up with wankers and just really, you know, just the ordinary and the post posty guy i think more and more just the people who do the ordinary jobs they've become you you get to cherish them more i think that's one of the things about the pandemic i still think there's an argument for putting the old people keeping the old people where they are and vaccinating the people in the co-op and the postal postal workers and i know Mm. that's that probably wouldn't protect the nhs sufficiently and i don't want to say that hazel shouldn't have had her has she had her first vaccine yes she has and i've got mine tomorrow have you? Oh my goodness, so if we'd spoken to you tomorrow night, it would have been like having a bit of Bill Gates on the call, wouldn't it? So I've picked you on the wrong day. <laughs> yeah, well, it's no, that means, yeah, I'll have a chip in my head and obviously I'll be part of the world order or something, I suppose. Yeah, the deep um, state or whatever it is. Yeah, and live forever. Oh, I do love a conspiracy theory, don't you? What's your favourite conspiracy theory? Uh... Well, I'll tell you the one I feel a bit sorry for at the moment is the, the chemtrail people. Yeah. Because I feel that they've not had much traction lately with all the new conspiracies coming in. I'm, I'm worried for the people. I like the flat earthers. They're good. Did you watch the, um, there was a really good flat earther documentary on Netflix, oh, I think it was. And the <laughs> thing I like most about it, so they got, rather than just having a pop at these people, because as, as my son as well as that being ADD is um, autistic. So I'm used to people seeing someone who seems a bit eccentric and a bit of an outlier yeah. and a bit of a yeah. nerd as someone to take the piss out of. And it's easy, isn't it, when people are different to go, there's something wrong with you. And I really liked it with the Flat Earth documentary that they got, you know, mainstream scientists in who, instead of laughing at these flat earthers, they said these are actually really clever people who've just found their, (laughs) they've gone to the nth degree away from mainstream thinking. But if we could harness their brilliance and obsession, they could be the world's greatest scientists. But they've now had to find people who think more and more like them, you know, confirmation bias. So I thought that was a really interesting way to think we should bring in the conspiracy theorists and help them rehabilitate. We know this, you only have to look. (laughs) 
obviously the earth is flat and it's i don't know why it's all it's built no it can't be bill gates because it's been flat for a while it's uh you know archimedes he just wanted to change you know try and pretend all this bullshit in order to make money i suppose is that why they're doing it i don't i can never really see the quite why why this conspiracy exists was anyone making money out of it it's, I think it's a bit like getting your own version of being a Kardashian for a day. So I think this, this documentary was really interesting because it basically seemed to say that these, these people would never be the cool one or the one everyone wanted to listen to in their real world. But if they go to a flat earth convention, uh, yeah. it's like Beyonce turning up on stage, the ones who are really well known. Um, yeah. So And suddenly it's like people finding their tribe. So as, as a mother of a bit of a social outlier, I actually found it quite touching then. And I thought there's dangerous conspiracy theories. I don't think insurrection is a good thing to aim for with a conspiracy theory no, so i'm not no. a fan of them but i did suddenly think oh maybe we should be a bit more empathetic to the conspiracy well, theories. also uh, you know in the end i think i don't know nothing as i believe plato said <laughs> when you're 15 yeah you know everything but the older you get the less and less you know i think and i'm always distrustful of people who suffer no doubt at all I think if you're under 30, you're allowed to have no self-doubt. But yeah. if over 30, you still think you've got all the answers. It's like the, um, oh, to have the confidence of a mediocre white man saying, isn't it? There's, uh, <laughs> yeah. You wouldn't know about that because you're obviously far from mediocre. Namaste, what would you pick as your namaste motherfucking moment? So a moment that changed your life. Yes, I was eight years old in primary school in Bermondsey in Southwark and our teacher Miss Marshall who was Canadian which is a very exciting thing this is in about 1962 or something announced that we would go our class was going to do a version of Peter Pan in front of the parents uh, um, and I went away I was so excited by this that I went home that night and wrote my version of Peter Pan, which I gave to Miss Marshall the next morning, and I presume it was unperformable. She said, well, it's very good, but um, we can't do it like quite like that. So uh, what part would you like to be? And obviously I went for Captain Hook, because uh, of Peter Pan, bloody hell, who wanted to play that part? Boring. Uh, I went for Captain Hook, because it was like a baddie, and my mother got me a sort of coat hanger. <laughs> And then when we were doing it, I came on intending to terrify everybody, all the parents. Uh, but in fact, they started laughing. And so I went round trying to terrify them. The more <laughs> I tried to terrify them, the more they all laughed. And all the, you know, the lost boys were laughing and everyone in the cast was laughing. And I sort of thought, oh, maybe this... This is the thing I can do then. Yeah, I'm not really a big baddie. I, yeah, this is good. And I just love the sound of that laughter. And I guess I've sought it ever since. So if you'd ended up being received as a terrifying, unempathetic character, you might have ended up being a, a Tory minister instead of a comedian. <laughs> so uh, it's lucky yeah. for the world that it went that way. Yeah, well, I think, you know, laughter is the one true metaphysical consolation. And to be involved in creating it is um, really a, a thing to be pleased about.
and you can keep doing it to your deathbed. No one's going to say you're too old to make me no. laugh. Um, no, and and by then you'll have dementia and you'll still think it's fun. You'll be like, I think they did laugh a minute ago. I can't remember. Well, no, David, when you get dementia properly, you really are funny. I mean, my mother says such funny things sometimes. It's, you know, I was watching the news with her once around at the home and I, and I said, oh, God, mother, what a terrible world we live in. And she said, yes, I would hate it. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good philosophy you see she is she's ahead of her time i think she's oh, got yeah. more more buddhism in her than buddha himself yeah yeah she really does she does have a kind of wisdom even within her confusion but you're wise as well there's a wisdom there's a smith wisdom you know in your book the stuff you were doing you when you were young you seemed did you think you always had a bit of a older head on your shoulders even when you were young well i've definitely always looked older than I am <laughs> and I was able to get into uh, like films for 18 year olds and I was about 11 you know <laughs> so a sort of crinkly look about me so in that sense yeah I've always felt old but um well I don't know wisdom do you know the French for wisdom it's a much nicer word what is it sagesse sagesse Oh, that is nice. It sounds like you could be wise and sexy, whereas here, wise yeah. means your hair's gone, you've yeah, got a beard, got, man yeah, or woman. Yeah. You can only really be wise if you're a man as well, obviously. Yeah, in, whereas sagesse, you know, yeah, Isabella Jamie could be, yes, sagesse. Yeah. Yeah, oh, it's well, sagesse as well, I think. Yeah, I'm going to try and cultivate some sagesse. Uh, yeah. I might, I might... Should we start a kind of a thing, an online sagesse? So we could like sell our knowledge of sagesse and make everyone else have sagesse and we can make a lot of money. What do you reckon, Kelly? I think that's good, like a sagesse salon. You can come into the online <laughs> salon yeah. for a bit yeah. of sagesse. Yeah. I think we might get some people who don't speak French thinking they're going to get something a bit more exciting <laughs> than, a, yeah. than a bit of Plato quoted out. <laughs> but I know you've got quite a lot to choose from but what's your favorite joke oh yeah I, I, yes i really decided i think i might i think i might do one that yeah i know i'll do this one that so uh, a brigadier dies and goes to heaven or wherever you go when you die and then eventually his wife manages to contact him through you know the afterlife you know, through some medium and she says oh hello what, what's it like up there and he says oh it's pretty good and she says, well, what do you do all day? He says, well, you get up, uh, you have a, well, have a swim, uh, have something to eat, have a bit of sex, go back to bed, that's it. And he says, well, that's funny, because when you were alive, you couldn't swim. You weren't interested in food, really. And let's be honest, you weren't that bothered about sex. And he says, ah, yes, he says, but down there, I wasn't a duck. <laughs> <laughs> And is that one of Sid's jokes? Oh, probably, yeah. I mean, I did learn a lot about it. I mean, funny enough, when I started doing comedy, you don't, uh, doing old gags was the last thing you meant to do. You meant to be doing something a bit more, you know, observational or, but uh, I've grown to love them and I do have quite a supply of old jokes. You yeah, do have some lovely ones. And you can't be stealing those jokes that are that old because no, no one knows where they came from, do they? There's no one ever going to say, that's my joke about no, the duck. Because uh, no, yeah. no one knows, do they? Yeah, no, they belong to everyone, those jokes. It's not mine. It's uh, it's yours as well, if you want to ever do it. It's like the kibbutz of jokes. We just put them all in there, bring them up together and bring them out as we <laughs> yeah, wish. Exactly. And if there was um, if there was one bit of life advice you, Arthur Smith, could give to anyone listening, 
what would mm. it be? Well, I, I'm loath to do that, really, in a way, but I'll, I'll say uh, a couple of things. Uh, this is a quote from T.S. Eliot, if you're feeling down. Despair and disillusion are essential moments in the progress of the intellectual soul. And I'd also say, um, remember, you are no more and no less important than anyone else. And finally, I'd agree with Lothian Council, who say Tuesdays and Fridays are rubbish days. <laughs> well, I like the fact you were like, I'm loath to give any, but I'm going to give you three bits. And it's always <laughs> nice. I don't think T.S. Eliot is given uh, by way of life advice to people oh, um, often true. enough. So thank you for <laughs> thank you for giving that. Um, you've been a lovely guest to have. Uh, thank, thank you, you so much for you've taking the time. Very charming and well prepared. I'm most impressed. Listen, if there's one thing I've learned is that you've got to prepare. You know, they say, don't they, that uh, persistence is a great substitute for talent. And I've always been <laughs> that. No, yeah, no, perseverance, not persistence. So yeah. um, thank so you So we're now going to do the leave the meeting business. <laughs> we are. Namaste, motherfucker. That was the legendary Arthur Smith. Now, every episode, I pick a thing I'm going to do inspired by my guest. And this week, I have decided I want to grease my creative wheels a bit and I'm going to try morning pages. Now, um, lots of people probably know what morning pages are. If you don't, they are in Julia Cameron's book, The Artist's Way. And what she says you need to do, it's pretty straightforward. I have done it before, but I've always lapsed and I'm going to try and get back into it. So all you do is um, pretty much first thing you do when you wake up in the morning, you know, before you get a coffee or do whatever you do, is you literally uh, take an A4 pad and you write three sides of A4, pen not typed, and you just keep pen to paper. It's sort of a stream of consciousness stuff. And uh, yeah, you just churn out three pages before you think too hard about it or do anything else for that day. So I'm going to be doing that between this and next week's podcast. And in the words of Robert Louis Stevenson, wine is bottled poetry. So that's my breakfast sorted until next time. That's the show for this week. Thanks so much to Arthur for joining me. Thank you for listening. You can find links to Arthur's website and social media and all the other good stuff in the show notes. Namaste Motherfuckers was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, with music by Jake Yap and produced by Mike Hansen for Pod People Productions. If you've liked today's show, please subscribe now on your favourite podcast app and also rate and review the show. Not because I'm needy and crave external affirmation, although those things are true, but because it does help other people find the show. We'll be back in your feed next Monday when I'll be talking to writer, presenter and podcaster Emily Dean. I felt such, I mean, I felt a fraud. And I felt so uncomfortable in my skin, my entire childhood. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers. Mm-hmm.